from WBEZ Chicago and the hole in your heart. This is Pleasure Town. Around the turn of the last century, a group of folk built their dream, a town where happiness was the main objective. But when you start with paradise, the only way to go is down. So dim the lights and join us as we delve into Pleasure Town. You know, Claude, a lot of folks came to us with nothing but their clothes. Everything else, horses, wagons, family, was left behind. Seems like they were doing themselves a favor, unloading their lives to live a little freer. But the significance of losing a thing can't be measured till you walked away. True words, my friend. Even my mother was like misplacing my heart. And there ain't a day go by where I don't hear my brother's laugh. <laughs> Watch it, Cyrus. You turned me into a wimp. Huh. But it's true. Some losses don't just leave you. They rip a piece right out of you. And some of these wounds need more than time to heal. For the longest time, Pleasure Town was white as alabaster. Never sat well with me. Made me feel like a policy of openness and tolerance was only a half-truth. Suppose you don't know what's true until you're put on trial. And having that barber and his brother come to town? Well, that was a test. Still not sure whether or not we passed. Things were moving fast all around us. The trains were coming from Kansas and Chicago to Arkansas. Edison was making history with electricity. And the black man was seeing the advent of a new day. My parents and their parents were all born into bondage. And then right there, all of a sudden, my brother and me, we were free men. Or as free as white people would let us be. It was a time that W.E.B. Du Bois would write about a few years later in The Souls of Black Folk. You see, I was fortunate enough to be able to read, a talent considered subversive by a lot of whites. Knowledge is power, after all, and they were content keeping us ignorant and weak. But our spirits wouldn't let that happen. I kept a passage from The Souls of Black Folk in my coat pocket, though I could recite it from memory with ease. I'd speak it to myself in the quiet of the morning, and I would speak it to my brother at night. And now I'll share it with you. After the Egyptian and the Indian, the Greek and the Roman, the Teuton and the Mongolian, the Negro is a sort of seventh son. Born with a veil and gifted with second sight in this American world. A world which yields him no true self-consciousness, but only lets him see himself through the revelation of the other world. It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, 
of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. One ever feels his two-ness. An American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two worn ideals in one dark body, whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. Beautiful yet tragic, isn't it? The truth often is. That's something I learned from my brother. His tragedy was blindness. And with being blind and a Negro in the South, well, that's one hell of a combination. So my job as the older brother had more responsibilities than most. I knew I had to be more than just a brother. I had to be a protector. As it turns out, looking after brother was a job that did all the work itself. Brother was surprisingly capable, moving around most places with the ease of a possum in the dark. He could dress himself and cook for himself. Man, could he cook. But this didn't deter me at all from keeping a close eye. When brother would say he was going for a walk, I would always drift behind. You never know when a white man with a bruised ego might be looking to take out his failures and deficiencies on an unsuspecting black man. But after a few minutes of trailing him, brother would always turn around and tell me to go back home. Funny, right? A blind man with eyes on the back of his head. To make a living, my brother and I opened a barbershop. I had learned to cut hair from my mother, and handling a straight razor just came naturally. I could give the cleanest shave this side of the Mason-Dixon. Even the grisliest frontiersmen would leave with a face as smooth as an egg. Now, as graceful as brother was living in darkness, I wasn't about to let him near a pair of shears which was all good since I needed someone to help out around the shop with things like sweeping, laundry, and all the other odd jobs. It also helped that brother was smart. He had a witness shop as a wedded razor. Sure, when the white people would first come into our shop, they'd give him a look over. But once he started talking, well, that broke the tension. Even with brother being able to handle his own, he still had doubts. Doubts about himself, doubts about being a burden on me, doubts about the way people saw him. I'd reassure him, what's a brother for? But I must admit, I too had my doubts. A blind man from birth, how could he understand that he was different from a white man? I could see it plain as day. I could see the hateful looks. I could see the sneers on their freckled faces. So for once, his lack of sight was a blessing. He might not be immune to their hate, but at least he didn't have to see it. Still, he'd ask why we were so despised. But I never could give him a convincing answer. So with all that hate in the air stirring up men's blood like a Texas tornado, it does not escape me that in these times it was rare indeed for a bunch of white folks to not bother a couple of Negroes and let us cut their hair. 
We were lucky. My skills behind the chair and brother's gift for conversation, they helped us win over the white men. So as long as we didn't visit their taverns or make eye contact with their families, we were left to ourselves. Was it fair? Of course not. But at least we weren't being strung up or burned alive. And then there was that Thursday in July. The air was thick and wet. I had finished trimming the last customer and was looking forward to brother and me having a cold beer on the porch and maybe some night fishing. And just as I was about to turn the sign around in the window to note that we were closed, he came in. Sorry, but we're closed for the night. Closed? I think you're mistaken. Beg your pardon? I said you are mistaken. I came in here for a haircut, and I will get a haircut. We'd be happy to clean you up in the morning. But I didn't ask for a cut in the morning. I asked for a cut now. And if you boy knew what was good for you, you'd remove the manure from your ears and offer me a seat. I knew this man was trouble. And experience had taught me that you don't want to cross a white man. But I looked over at brother, who was standing with a broom in his hand, real still, like a statue. He had a look on his face I'd never seen. You see, brother could hear as good as a hound, maybe better. And he must have heard something in this white man's voice that made the hair on his neck stand as straight as a fence post. What are you looking at, you half-wit? That's my brother. And he's not a half-wit, just blind. Well, half-wit, you can either show me to my chair or you can bend over, take that broom of y'all's and stick it up y'all. And that's when something in brother must have broken through to the surface, some kind of fire or explosion that had been growing inside that was just waiting to bust out. You see, brother may have been blind, but he was not weak. Ma would always ask him to open the mason jars that were sealed too tight, and Pa would have him chop the wood in the winter. In that moment, brother used that strength of his to grab the stranger by the throat. The stranger thrashed around like an alligator caught in a trap, punching and kicking at the air, trying to get a breath in, but brother wouldn't let up. He just kept squeezing until the white man's face turned blue. When the body dropped to the ground, I took out my blade, bent down, and made a clean cut from ear to ear. Had to make sure he was dead. Had to be part of the killing. I couldn't let brother take all the blame. But then again, I wasn't going to let brother or me take any of the heat. I looked up at brother, and he seemed to be looking directly at me. He was smiling wide, which scared me. I said to him that we had to move the body, and that we had to do it now, since it was dark. We'd be protected by the night. And so we went to the river, right where brother and I always set up our fishing poles, and with a heave-ho, we threw that body into the water. It made a big splash, and then sank below the surface like a rotten log. 
We cleaned up the shop and sat down on our front porch with a couple of beers in silence. Soon old Stan Jones, a local brick mason, came by. You all seen my cousin? He just rolled into town yesterday and I recommended he see you for a trim. He was supposed to meet us down at the tavern over an hour ago. Sorry, Mr. Jones, but we've been closed up for some time and nobody's passed our way. Well, I'm sure he'll show up. Probably found himself a pretty little thing to spend the night with. You all take care now. Stay out of trouble. But of course these words were too little too late. We were up to our whiskers in trouble. You can't kill a white man in the South and not expect to pay the ultimate price. I knew they'd put two and two together, so Brother and I packed our things up that night and fled. We headed west to Oklahoma until we stumbled upon a little place called Pleasure Town. Turns out, Pleasure Town was so new they didn't have a proper barber. So Brother and I set up shop, and I must say business has been good. People here don't care what you are, and they don't ask any questions about where you came from. That wouldn't be a problem for Brother. He hasn't talked since that night with the stranger. The whole thing just struck him dumb. What I wouldn't give to hear his gentle voice again, his laugh, his singing. What I wouldn't give to change what had to be done. So while I have found a home in Pleasure Town, it does not mean that is where I belong. I'm not sure if there is even a place for me, for us. I will always feel the two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body. Pleasure Town will return in a moment. See enough people, you start to know which ones are headed for sorrow. Like that Shaman John fella. Man had rain clouds hovering overhead most of his life. Yeah, his sorrow, he was kind of like a glow. Like he'd been marked. Lord, lift me up to the light. Lord, lift me up to the sky. If you're down with the devil in the pouring rain, don't you ever look back if he calls your name. Lord, lift me up to the light. It's night now, and my hair is getting long. I'm thinking. Midway upon the journey of life, I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward path had been lost. And it's raining. Of course it is. Anytime anyone tells you it could be worse, 
Could be raining. You have my permission to give him a crack in the teeth. I wish there was a fella nearby for me to cut a tooth on right now, but of course, it's raining. And I'm alone in the woods. The sky is dripping, falling like melted ink down a hot parchment. All the words of the day running together into a black pool of gibberish. The ground is cold, prickly like a sampling of bee stings piercing my legs to my ass. But at least the herb is great. I got a few sticks from Bulger in town the day after it happened. He says to me, I ain't sure I know what I'm to say. And I spit on the ground. I was damn near drowned in the bag when he found me, whiskey-soaked and muddy-eyed. He gave me his hand, and I gave him a gob of snot when I coughed out the dirt I'd been smothering myself in. He held out a brown stick, looked like a twig of dog turd. He says, Smoke it. It's an herb. This was gotta happen. And I clawed it, poked it in with my teeth, let my legs do the walking. We limped to somewhere, what does it matter? And he lit me up. It was a smoke with a taste like hickory and skunk fur, and it made me hack it away. Bulger hoisted me up like a puppet. Then he says to me, Go again! And I took another mouthful of the fire. And Bulger put his hand over my mouth. I must have sneezed, but he didn't seem to mind. And I almost swallowed the damn junk before he let go and I was back to hacking. The back of my forehead hurt. My lungs felt soggy. I needed to sit down on the wood floor of wherever the hell we were. And then, I was free. I floated out of my skin, and I let my body be a bag of history. From then on, I was hooked. So, <clears throat> here I am, having an herbal party in the woods. I'm here because of Bulger. I'm here because of Shiner. But mostly, I'm here because of that damn wagon driver. Shiner and I got so close we didn't need words. We used them anyway, though. We'd talk and walk and stumble and laugh. (laughs) We'd each throw out jokes or observations until one of them landed and got the other one to giggle. Then we'd both lose it until she couldn't breathe. We'd been joking about this wagon driver... How he looked as if he was in a race of one. I said something infantile and she laughed and laughed and a gasp and then silence. The wagon passed and I watched it sidewander into the side of a hitching post. And all I remember was saying, Looks like he lost the race. And I laughed. I laughed like a kid in church. Then I turned to laugh with Shiner. But where once she stood was air and dust. And it hit me that maybe she was doubled down with laughing, so I looked down to find her. 
but all I saw was a pile of muddy dress and an arm shuffled in the mess like someone was trying to hide it. No. Didn't take more than a moment before I knew what was going on. No. But it took me a hell of a lot longer before I knew I was on my knees, and my face was wet with her blood and I was screaming. And that's when it started raining. A month later, I'm here. Sogging in the grass. Smoking this herb. And letting the night strangle me in my sleep. And then it all goes blank. But I don't remember closing my eyes. And it's white. Like a new page. And it's quiet, like it was before anything ever was. But I'm not alone. There is something watching behind the gauze, and it heaves in huge steam pipe breaths, like the iron horse that churgle and shake the ground when they barrel their way through town. I can feel its gut rumbling, and can smell its dead breath. And then all is black. I'm in a nest made of pine needles that sits amidst the gray soot of ashen ground. I look to my hands. They're chapped and split from a hundred nights in the desert. I make a fist. It creaks like a shed. I pass it along the earth, folding a handful of ash. It's so fine, it hurts my teeth. It is now I hear the howls and look up to a black sky that has never seen stars. The howl comes again, and I know it is a man. The howl becomes a chorus, and through the fog I see them, pawing the ash, mewling like cats whose tongues are tied to their cages. I call out to them, and they stop and look up at me their eyes haunted by an army of ghosts. Their faces are desperate, thirsty, and lost at sea. Their minds abandoned long ago. They then mope away, yelping for something that'll never come. I pass my hand along my chest, and I feel the pinch of barbed wire that has been fashioned about my person like chains and I stand up on legs too thin to carry me far. I stumble and tremble on spindly sticks as I walk into the mist. It clings to my skin like ice to sweat. The walk is long, and every step on uneven ground tips me this and that way until I crack my knee on a rock so sharp it slices my sinews like a hot blade on cream. But I continue, every bleeding step of victory. Another step, and I think of Utah. Another step, and I see my mother, whose face is medicine that could heal my ruined body. Another, and I see my father, who stands a beacon at sea that could guide me home. It is then I fall. I see my sister's. Two crutches that could carry me when my legs become stumps. I weep. The tears whisper hot, 
too few from my eyes. And I think a pleasure town. Rough but cheap. But there is a bed no finer. I'm hungry for it. And it is then I call for help. And it is then I am met with silence. The mist parts. And I find that I stand not on the ashen ground, but on a lake frozen over for more years than there are numbers made. And its expanse is beyond sight. I walk. Each step is a cat's paw on snow. And there, as the haze lifts, is the heavy breast of the beast fathoms high and eons wide, stuck, waist up, in the ice. I'm thinking, oh, what a marvel it appeared to me when I beheld three faces on his head. Each one of the faces stares at me with a grin that is more a grimace that found a scrap of joy. In time, you'll learn there is no help, my son. There is only wandering and finding and dealing and moving on. I don't know which pair of eyes to stare into for pity. The beast puts one of his heads into his hands, resting his scorched elbow on the ice. He looks puzzled. He taps a brow, thinking, as he does. Ah, yes. He writes himself. Must have seen a look on my face. He reaches into the mist and removes a curiosity from an unseen shelf. He tosses it into the air above him and snatches it like a penny. The wind from his hand is a breath of a hurricane, knocking me back. He swings his mighty fist to me, pounding the ice. My head vibrates, my teeth clack together. The master magician opens his hand for the big reveal. And it is that. It is a woman in white, bound with a red velvet rope, and she falls limp to the ice. I would recognize that hair anywhere. Shiner? John? Her eyes are shaking with fear. She is awake. She is alive. Dear Lord, John, I'm so cold. On my knees, I reach out for her, She strains her hands to my arms. The beast plucks her up and angles her before me. But you don't move on very well, do you, my son? I think to myself of a bargain, a a deal, what I have to offer. The beast tilts all of his heads. He has heard my mind whirring, and he nods three times at once. Oh, yes. Let's indeed make a deal. But you have so little left to barter. 
The beast closes his fingers around Shiner. So, what do you have to give me for this treasure? Nothing is free. Nothing worth having. And I rattle. I cry. I am frantic, clawing at reason. I remember the coat I bought her, and the day we shared, the time under the tree, candy, and kisses, and how that kiss opened the locked box that was inside of me. How angry I'd been that someone could open it, that someone had a key that I had never copied or given. And so I reach into my chest with the jagged remains of my hand, and I pull out my heart. I hold it up to the beast whose six eyes light up like green candles, a light that shows no warmth. He smiles all of his smiles and drops Shiner to the ice. Deal. Shiner looks up at my offering, and her ropes are gone. The barbed wire on my chest is loose. John! Shiner! We embrace. I feel nothing but understanding. She kisses me. She looks into my eyes, as hers well with tears. It confuses me. Why would anyone cry? Then I see her furrow her brow, and she turns to the beast. Is it done? We are free to go? He nods. I need that in writing, sir. He nods. In her hands she holds a parchment for our release signed in gray. She turns to me and smiles before turning again to the beast. But I'll be taking what's mine afore I go, you great whale. For though he didn't know, didn't understand it, probably never will because he's a dim-witted fool, under that tree he gave that heart to me. The beast frowns. Looks into his hands and finds they are empty. (laughs) Shiner holds up my heart and presses it deep into my chest. I remember why we cry. And I grab her about the waist and kiss that tricky woman. I open my eyes in the woods again. The rain stops, the moon comes out of its hiding hole, and I see the trees glitter from the storm. I breathe in the free air. After years of forging my faith, my soul, and my life, all this time I thought my heart was my own. But it seems a man owns nothing. And I stand up knowing that no matter where I roam, there's a woman who has my heart. I walk out of the woods and keep walking straight through town. Rudd's the only one that seems to notice. He waves, but I ignore him. He calls my name, but I keep walking. Finally, he runs in front of me, extends his arms and pushes against my chest. I wince. We both look down as I pull my frayed and muddied coat to the side. 
instead of the smooth skin that would have greeted me a day before, a red and throbbing scar snakes from my shoulder to my belly. What... What happened? Devil took my heart. Shiner gave it back. And I turn and keep walking. It's clear that's what I am to do. That is my path now, as it has always been. And who knows where's next. Utah is behind me. Shiner is behind me. Pleasure Town is behind me. On to the next mission. Lord, lift me up to the light. Lord, lift me up to the sky. If you're down with the devil in the pouring rain, don't you ever look back if he calls your name. Oh, Lord, lift me up to the light. What do you miss most about your mother? What do you care? Just curious. Well, I miss her biscuits. Of all the women I've met, not one could make them like her. There has to be more to it than just her biscuits. You saying something wrong with her biscuits? I would never dare. I guess I miss her touch most of all. The way she'd place her hand on my head and mess my hair. Or how she'd touch my cheek before wishing me a good night. That's beautiful, Claude. Just beautiful. Goddamn wimp. Hey, this is Keith. And this is Aaron. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Pleasure Town. Absolutely. And as you know, Pleasure Town is an interactive narrative. We want all of our listeners in a lot of different ways to join the story. There's a lot of ways you can do that. To find out what those ways are, head to our website, pleasuretownshow.com or wbez.org slash pleasuretown and click join the story. Yep. And this week particularly, we are asking you all to submit artwork of any kind, illustrations, collages, uh, whatever you can produce that depicts this legend that has arisen in Pleasure Town with regards to Shaman John and his interaction with the devil. And as we uh, receive the submissions, we'll be posting on the website. So if you want some inspiration, see what the other listeners are producing, head to the website as we receive them. They'll be up there for you to see. To send those to us, email them to pleasuretownshow at gmail.com, please. That is pleasuretownshow at gmail.com. All one long, fictitious word. <laughs> Absolutely. And, of course, there is more Pleasure Town for you to digest, for you to consume. You can find all of that on our website. Follow us on Twitter, Pleasure Town Show OK. And we have a, a Facebook as well. Just uh, Google Pleasure Town. You'll find us with some other interesting things. And if you like what you heard, rate and review us on iTunes. And also subscribe, because then that way you can get us automatically on your device. Hooray, technology. This episode of Pleasure Town was written by Aaron Cahoe, Keith Ecker, and Andrew Marikas. With voices by Julian Stroop, Tyler Green, Alex Blanchett, Josh Zagorin, Paul Friedman, Miriam Sobe, and Van Wilson. Direction and sound design by Joe Dassault. Our interns are me, Emily Modaff, and Allison Agumakun. Original music was composed and performed by River Rising's Megan Diger and Tim Hazen, and engineered by Colin Ashmead Bobbitt. 
Pleasure Town is a part of the WBEZ Podcast Network. Discover more excellent shows at WBEZ.org slash podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in another two weeks with a new episode. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.